The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Like double dog dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing TV now? It's a Thursday edition of PFTPM from my fairly new studio here. In my office, I've realized it's a hell of a lot easier to just sit where I work, keep the place reasonably clean, plug in a microphone, press the appropriate button, and off we go. And off we go today with all the important and latest news in the National Football League. And I want to start with the chatter that's still out there about Antonio Brown potentially joining the Seahawks. There was a video recently of Brown working out with Russell Wilson. Look, This connection has been out there for a while now. Remember last year when the Seahawks signed Josh Gordon? The report was that it was basically going to be Gordon or Antonio Brown. And they went with Gordon, in part because Gordon, they knew they would immediately get on the field. Antonio Brown, there was this lingering sense all of last season that if anyone signed him, he'd immediately be put on the commissioner exempt list based upon pending investigations for violation of the personal conduct policy. Well, here we are now. Nearly 10 months after the lawsuit originally filed against Antonio Brown that created the specter of the commissioner exempt list, there were two other incidents after that. There was the alleged harassment via text message of a woman who came forward to SI.com with some details of a separate incident involving Brown. And then there was the incident earlier this year with the driver removing truck down in Florida. Brown recently pleaded no contest to felony charges in connection with that incident. So the end result is, if the Seahawks are interested in Brown, they have no idea when he's gonna be available. Nobody knows when he's gonna be available. Nobody knows what kind of a suspension he's going to get. No one knows what the league will do for the most recent incident. And when you plead no contest, you're still gonna get some sort of punishment. And my guess based upon precedent would be four to six games from that alone. And then there's the incident of harassment. What do they do for that if they determine it happened? And then the big one is the alleged sexual assault and rape that was never reduced to a criminal complaint, but was brought and is pending in a civil proceeding. Look, regardless of whatever legal standard applies before the court of Roger Goodell, and obviously it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a lower bar, there isn't a middle ground here. Either the league is going to conclude that Brown did it or he didn't do it. So if they believe the alleged victim more than they believe him, they're more likely to find he did it. And if they find that he committed sexual assault and or rape, especially if they find he committed rape, how do they ever let him play in the NFL again? And the thing is, it's all still pending. One of the problems I have with the personal conduct policy, there are no dates. There are no deadlines. There is no trigger. There is no requirement that an investigation be completed within 60 days of its commencement. It can linger forever. And the union has no ability to fight back. And that's the way the personal conduct policy has always been. The people out there that want to dump on NFLPA Executive Director DeMora Smith say, well, he allowed that to be created. No, it already existed. 
So in order to change it, you have to be willing to make some other concession elsewhere. That's what D. Smith inherited. And look, I say this all the time as it relates to the personal conduct policy. How much does every player want to give up for something that helps on average two or three players per year? Now, it potentially could affect any of them, but as a practical matter, it's a very small fraction of the entire rank and file that ends up being affected by these things. So how much do you give up to help an Antonio Brown or the next Antonio Brown or the next Antonio Brown? There's about one per year. Now, I still think that the NFL should fix the policy just as a matter of what is the right thing to do in a situation like this. And I'll say this, the right thing to do is suspended for 2020, all or part of the season. He should get credit for the 14 games he missed last year because his posture, as relates to the possible placement on the commissioner exempt list, kept teams away from signing him, plain and simple. He became radioactive. He has served a de facto 14-game unpaid suspension since this issue first came up and since the Patriots cut him after the second incident, the alleged harassment via text message of the woman who came forward to SI.com. Once that came out, that's when the Patriots moved on. He was unsigned the rest of the year, unemployed the rest of the year. And it's all because the NFL would never come out and say, yes, he'll be on the commissioner exempt list. No, he won't. It was the perfect atmosphere to scare people away from signing Antonio Brown. The end result is he's missed 14 games, period. So if he gets suspended 16 games this year, well, he should get credit for 14. If it gets suspended 12 games, you know, anyway, you, you can do the math. I can't. Bottom line is he should get credit for those games. So, yes, it looks like the Seahawks are interested. But, no, there's no clarity as to when he'll be able to play. And, yes, I believe whatever happens with the one resolved incident, at least as the criminal courts are concerned, the two other pending incidents as it relates to the NFL, all of those things, whatever the punishment is, he should get credit for the 14 games that he essentially served last year in the form of an unpaid suspension. All right, speaking of the NFL and its habit of handing out penalties, both the Patriots and the league office benefited from the fact that just about five or 10 minutes before, or before, five or 10 minutes after the Cam Newton news broke on Sunday night, came the leak, came the report that the NFL had punished the Patriots for Spygate 3, I don't know, Spygate whatever. Spygate December 2019, the Browns-Bengals game a week before the Patriots were due to play the Bengals, a video crew in the press box taping the sideline of the Cincinnati Bengals, created a big mess. Patriots quickly admitted to it, but the Patriots said all along, this had nothing to do with our football operations. And there were multiple reports that, there's no evidence connecting the Patriots video crew to the football operation. And I said from the beginning, look, that's what the investigation needs to focus on, establishing any link, any tentacles between football operations and the video crew. And if you find it, that's when the antenna go up. That's when you get very aggressive about trying to prove that there was a side assignment that was given to these individuals or that it was all just a ruse. It was a cover for an effort to go into the press box and take video of the Bengals sideline. So I've never seen anything to suggest that there was any connection between the video crew and football operations. 
I've seen no reports to suggest it, and I'm told there is no proof. And I remember hearing back in December when the investigation got started that the investigators were getting frustrated with some of the Patriots' witnesses because they couldn't prove that there was a link. They wanted to prove a link. That was the perception that some of the people who were being interviewed got. So here we are. The news comes out Sunday night of the punishment. And when you look at it, here's what happened. There, there was no statement from the league. I went looking this morning for the statement from the league or the article at NFL.com or anything that would tell us why the NFL did what it did, what evidence it ultimately gleaned in order to support the conclusion. And there's nothing. All the NFL did was confirm the reporting that appeared separately on Sunday night. No explanation of the evidence, no explanation of the reasons for the punishment based upon the evidence, no analysis of how past Patriots incidents may have affected the final decision, no comparison of this incident to other incidents from recent years. And remember, fairly early in the process, there were multiple reports suggesting that the punishment would be similar to what other teams experienced for similar incidents. That was coming from the league office. That wasn't something that the reporter was just pulling out of the air. Somebody in the league office was saying, hey, here's how it's going to go down. And when you look at the similar incidents that were mentioned in reports by people like Adam Schefter of ESPN and Mark Maskey of the Washington Post, it seems like the Patriots for what they did ended up getting it a lot worse because when you look at the incidents that have happened in recent years, and I'm just going to name a couple of them, Ray Farmer, the former Browns GM, when he texted down to the sideline during games in blatant violation of the rules, the Falcons piping in fake crowd noise in blatant violation of the rules with a clear effort to get a strategic advantage. Ben McAdoo, remember when he was using a walkie talkie on the sideline, blatant violation of the rules and clearly something that was aimed at advancing the agenda of trying to win the football game. He wasn't ordering another case of Brill Cream, right? It had something to do with the game. There was a benefit to be derived. The difference here is it has never been established that anything done by that video crew was ever going to benefit the football team. If you can't show a connection between the video crew and the football operations, how do you show that the Patriots were even cheating? They broke the rules technically, but without that link, that's why that link was so critical. The link from the video crew back to football operations, if you can't establish that link, there's nothing that comes from it that ever could have come from it that would have helped the Patriots prepare for and beat the Bengals. That's what makes this case different from all the other ones because all the other cases had a clear nexus, had a clear connection between conduct and strategic benefit. No strategic benefit here, but still $1.1 million fine, third round draft pick. Those were the major penalties imposed on the Patriots and all I want. And if you're with any team in the NFL, the Patriots or any of the other 31, including the Bengals, you want to know what they did to trigger the punishment. What's the connection? And one of the fundamental purposes of any type of a criminal justice system, whether public or private, you want to deter others from engaging in similar behavior. Well, without transparency, how does anyone know what behavior to avoid? What did the Patriots do to justify 1.1 million and a third round pick? Did you find a connection to football operations? We don't know. Did you find that there was some potential strategic advantage to be gained? We don't know. 
did you find that this video crew had a habit of showing up the week before every opponent that the Patriots were due to play last year? We don't know. And I don't think it was accidental. I don't think it was laziness. I don't think it was people are on vacation and nobody wanted to put it together. I think the NFL wanted to do what it wanted to do. And that's what the NFL does all the time. Now, often what happens is the NFL picks its resolution and works backward. In this case, it just picked its resolution and didn't bother to work backward, forward, or in any direction. The report was made of what the punishment is. The NFL confirmed it. And no one has provided any type of analysis. And we're not asking for much here. They know what the evidence was. They know why they did what they did. Are they concerned that if they explain it, it's not going to hold up under questioning? Are they concerned that it's illogical, that it's unfair? Are they concerned that they just decided they don't like the Patriots and this is what we're going to do? Patriots should have known better. Any team out there, the Patriots should know better. You know what? If that's the argument, go ahead and lay that out. See, my belief is this. In a setting like this, when you are disciplining organizations, when you're taking away a draft pick, any draft pick, but a third round draft pick, pretty significant draft pick, you have a duty to all of the teams and to the media and the fans to be fully transparent and let people know why you're doing what you're doing. And when you choose not to be transparent, the inescapable conclusion is you're up to something. You're up to no good. You're trying to conceal why you did what you did because you don't want those decisions and that reasoning to be exposed to the light of day because you know if it is... It's not going to look good. But who knows how it's going to look because they hit it. They've concealed it. They have found a way to keep the Patriots and everyone else from knowing exactly why the NFL did what it did. Why not tell everyone why you did what you did? Why not lay out the evidence? Why not let everyone know exactly what it is that got the Patriots in trouble, especially since the Patriots and every other team now need to know going forward what it is that will get them in trouble? It's simple. And it's frustrating that me, as somebody who follows the league, covers the league, and analyzes the decisions made by the league, has no opportunity to even begin to understand the connection between what we know and what the league did. And I think there's got to be something to bridge that gap. And without it, it's impossible to understand why the league did what it did or what will get similar teams in similar circumstances in similar predicaments in the future. Daniel Snyder, the Washington owner, has a predicament. It's unclear whether he's acknowledged that to himself or anyone else, but the pressure is continuing to mount on Snyder to change the name of his team. Two developments from Wednesday. First, 87 investment firms that represent $620 billion in assets, putting pressure on Nike, Pepsi, and FedEx to stop doing business with the Washington franchise until it changes its name. Now, FedEx is important here because FedEx Field is the name of the place where the team plays. And also, Fred Smith, the CEO of FedEx, is one of the owners of the franchise. If you can start putting pressure on Fred Smith, then maybe he puts pressure on Daniel Snyder. Maybe, right? Maybe. So of those three companies, I think FedEx is the one that people need to focus on if you want to get the attention eventually of Dan Snyder. But this is the first time. This issue has been hanging around for seven years now. This is the first time there's been any type of pressure placed upon the sponsors of the franchise. Also, and this one has kind of been percolating out there. We've known it's going this way, but forget about having a new stadium on the site of RFK Stadium, unless and until the name changes. That's something that Snyder would like to do. And part of the bargain is going to be 
give up the name. Now, look, the cynical side of me has believed that Snyder is just holding back, changing the name so he can leverage it for some tangible benefit, whether it's more money to build a stadium, whether it's a draft in D.C., whether it's an open air, cold weather Super Bowl in D.C., whatever the case may be. I feel like he's been holding it back for the right time to trade it for something. And by saying, as he did several years ago, all caps, never will he change the name. That just puffs up the value of the thing that he eventually would turn in for some consideration coming back to him. But in this moment, it's not like he's going to get anything in return for doing it. The question is, will there be enough pressure put on him that he has to do something now to end this discussion? I still don't know whether or not the discussion is even registered. And it astounds me that he doesn't see the parallels between himself and George Preston Marshall. That 40 or 50 years from now, Snyder will be getting the same kind of treatment that Marshall is getting now. Of course, Snyder hasn't done anything to merit a monument or placement in the Ring of Honor or anything like that. So it's not like there's anything that would be tangible that could be taken away years from now. But you don't want to be remembered that way. So I just don't know what the end game here is for the team other than I believe to run out the clock and hope that eventually we'll all move on to something else and the franchise will be allowed to continue with a name that is a dictionary defined racial slur, but that no one is applying the kind of pressure on Snyder to get him to change it, period, including the league. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but I haven't heard anything. If the NFL was intent on getting him to change the name, and if the NFL was talking to him behind the scenes, somebody from the league office would leak that to reporters because that allows the NFL to look good. They, they don't look like they're being disrespectful. They're not going public, but sources with knowledge of the situation have confirmed that yada, yada, yada. That's a way to get it out there. That the league is doing something. Right now, the league is doing nothing, and I think the league is complicit. And people have said to me, well, why are you giving Ron Rivera a hard time about this? Well, He's the only guy who's out there talking. Snyder is nowhere to be seen. Rivera was on radio in Chicago three days ago, and he said that the issue of the name change is a discussion for another time. We criticized him for that, because if now isn't the time, when is? Well, why are you giving Ron Rivera a hard time? He's just an employee. Well, he has said he's the leader of the franchise, and he's empowered to run the organization, and he believes actions speak louder than words, so I think he is somebody who could be singled out. But secondly, Snyder's not doing these interviews. Snyder's not making himself available. Snyder's not answering any of these questions. Think about what he said back in 2013 when he said, put it down in all caps, I'll never change the name. Think of how that would go over if he would do it now. That's why he's not saying anything. And I continue to hold out hope that players will eventually say something. That's the next frontier in all of this. You start having people who are employed by the organization and who will stand up and talk. Now, look, I'm going to get the same reaction. Why are you putting pressure on these guys? They're just trying to get a paycheck. They're just trying to play football. Why do you want them to say something? Well, what's going to happen? They're going to get cut? If Dwayne Haskins says something, is he going to get benched? If Adrian Peterson says something, is he going to get cut? Terry McLaurin, Chase Young. You think Chase Young is going to suffer any consequence whatsoever? If he says, you know, I've been thinking about this. And Chase Young is a very conscientious young man. Chase Young decided that he wasn't going to work out at the combine. He wasn't going to give in to the pressure that gets put on these players to entertain the rest of us in late February when there's no football going on. He understands the business. If he has a moment of conscience, why couldn't he say, yeah, I don't think that's a good name. I think they need to change it. I think that's the next frontier. The question is, will the name change now? Will it change later? 
And what will be the legacy of the people who participated and enabled the ongoing existence of this name beyond this moment? Forget about the last seven years. This is the moment where the change needs to happen. This is the reckoning and awakening on all matters of race. This is the time for it to happen. And the clock is ticking loudly and legacies are on the line. And we'll see if anybody steps up and does the right thing. All right, NFL looking at cutting the preseason in half. We reported that yesterday. Week one, week four, gone. The other two weeks will likely be reconfigured. So everybody has one home game and one road game. And we've said before that's important because you want everyone to have a chance to go through the motions of getting ready to play a game at home with pandemic protocols in place. Go on the road and play a game with pandemic protocols in place. There have been reports that the NFLPA hasn't signed off on that yet. But there are counter reports that the NFL is determined to play two preseason games. We'll see what happens, but I'd be stunned if there are fewer than two preseason games. And that leads into my next point. Everything that's going on right now between the NFL and the NFL Players Association is negotiable. We see once every five or 10 years, the league and the union negotiate a collective bargaining agreement from start to finish, top to bottom, inside and out, lengthy, detailed document that is the product of months and months and months of negotiation. Basically what they're going to be doing soon, I hope, is creating a collective bargaining agreement for one season, for 2020. Here's what we're going to do to try to play a season in a pandemic. And all of these issues are on the table. You, know, you look at the current CBA, and I was having this conversation with someone last night because somebody said, oh, the changing conditions of the pandemic require the parties to go to the bargaining table and negotiate a new deal. No, they don't. No, they don't. The union ratified the current agreement during the pandemic. If the league wanted to do it, and if the union wanted to do it, they just say, we go forward. We don't have to do anything. Off we go. We have an agreement in place. Now, as a reality, the NFL is going to want to do some things differently, things that would give rise to a duty to bargain. You change the working conditions by wanting to do certain things to protect people, to fulfill the obligation to provide a safe workplace, that unlocks the duty to sit down and talk it through. So to the extent that the union wants one preseason game or no preseason games, that's just one of the concessions that would have to be made. The union says, we want no preseason games, fine. What does the league want? See, the union doesn't get to walk in and dictate everything here. This isn't Spalding and Caddyshack going up to the snack bar saying, I want this, I want that, I want that. But on the same token, this isn't Judge Smale saying you'll get nothing and like it. There's a middle ground here. And the challenge is getting it all done before July 28 and actually getting it done before July 19 because that's when the rookies can be required to show up for their coronavirus test. Conditioning for rookies starts two days later. On the 21st, injured veterans show up for their coronavirus test. Conditioning for them starts two days later. Culminating in testing of healthy veterans on July 26th for the coronavirus, and then full training camp on the 28th. Now, I know that there are teams considering just having everyone show up on the 28th because they're scrambling to get their facility ready for training camp given the pandemic requirements. But bottom line is there is not much time for the league and the union to work out whatever it is they're going to work out. They have a lot of issues. There's a lot of sub-issues. And there's a lot of sub-sub-issues. As J.C. Treader said, every question that's resolved leads to three more questions. And it just spirals out of control. And they have to figure out all of these issues. 
And I feel like one of the reasons they've delayed is that, well, first of all, it's a deadline driven business, but you got a lot of work to do with this deadline approaching. But second, I think that they were hoping that there would be more evidence, more data from other sports returning to play. And the reality is the major sports aren't going to be back before it's time to show up for training camp. And if they are back beforehand, I don't have the actual firm, if there is a firm timeline for NHL, MLB, or NBA, but it's going to be close. Even if the other sports start before July 28th, they're not going to be starting that much before July 28th, and anything meaningful can come out of that that will help guide the NFL. So bottom line is there's a lot to do. There's not much time within which to do it. And both sides need to in good faith with the goal of getting this fixed. Now isn't the time to settle old scores. Now isn't the time to try to make the last deal a little bit better. Now isn't the time to be thinking about 2021, concessions for future years that get folded back into this year. Focus on this year. Focus on the procedures for this year and get it done or we're going to have a problem and it's all going to get delayed. And then media is going to take sides. Fans are going to take sides. It's going to be a big mess. And it's already a big mess, but it's got the potential to be an even bigger mess if the league and the union can't make some agreements quickly on what this season is going to look like. All right, last topic. And this relates to college football. And I thought of this earlier today because of the announcement from USC that they will be encouraging undergraduate students to take their classes this year exclusively online and discouraging undergraduate students from living on or near campus. Meanwhile, campus is still going to be open. See, you can't have college football without college. And a lot of these schools are going to try to thread this needle where they really don't have college, but they have enough college to justify playing college football. It's unfortunate, but it's reality because all of these programs, yes, they want to balance the safety of their students, but it's got to be balanced against maximizing revenue. And college football makes too much money, especially when you don't have to pay the players. And it caused me to wonder, who is going to protect the players here? They don't have a union like the NFL players do. The schools aren't going to protect them. That is the ultimate fox guarding the hen house. And the NCAA has checked out on this. We had a story about that over the weekend. A mother of a Notre Dame player concerned about the fact that Notre Dame is doing everything the right way. And their first opponent of the year, Arkansas, isn't. They're only testing players who show symptoms or who have been directly exposed to someone who's positive for the virus. That's it. So somebody needs to be taking care of these kids. And there's no one in a position to do it. And I don't know what's going to come of it. Now, look, the one thing that could be done, and it's going to require the players to stand up to their coach, but you find a lawyer who can put together a lawsuit with, yeah, you don't have to have every player's name on the lawsuit to potentially put the brakes on a program that may not have safe procedures in place. But if you throw together a complaint for injunctive relief, you put together a motion for preliminary injunction coupled with a motion for a temporary restraining order, and you can go into court, you probably have to go into federal court, you don't want to be the elected judge at the state level who pulls the plug on the popular local university football program or you ain't going to win 
the next time you're up for election. You want to go to a federal judge who's appointed for life and you file that federal lawsuit and you seek that federal injunction that shuts down the program until certain protocols definitely are satisfied. That's really all the players have. And the problem is a lot of the players don't care. A lot of them just don't care. They should care. A lot of them don't care. So it'll be interesting to see if any of the schools that are, by all appearances, plowing ahead with football will be facing resistance from players and will specifically be facing some sort of litigation compelling the organizations to do what they should do anyway, which is take care of these kids, especially since they are basically free labor. They already take all of the risks that are associated with playing full contact football at a very high level. Now, on top of that, they're going to be assuming the risks of contracting the coronavirus and possibly passing it to family members, possibly family members who are vulnerable, possibly family members who will die. It's not an acceptable situation. And that's a big difference between college and pro. There's a union in place to protect the players. There's nothing in place to protect college football players. Here's hoping that someone eventually will. That's it for Thursday's PFPPM. We'll do it again to wrap up the week on Friday. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Everybody have a good day. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.